Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Supporting Student Learning Through the Contextualized Evaluation Framework. Nicole and I will talk with Dr. Carrie Douglas, who is an assistant professor in the Purdue School of Engineering Education. Her research is focused on improving the quality of classroom assessments and evaluation of online learning in a variety of engineering education contexts. So, Carrie, welcome to our podcast. It's wonderful to have you here. And we're looking forward to talking to you about online assessment um, and possibly any other topics that could relate to online classes. And if you don't mind to briefly introduce yourself to our audience, and we'll take it from there. Well, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. So I'm Carrie Douglas. I'm an assistant professor of engineering education at Purdue. And basically when the summer or when the rather in the spring of 2020, when uh, the universities were announcing that they would be closing uh, or moving online for the pandemic, I had uh, the idea to study how engineering instructors would make these decisions and what the impacts to students would be uh, because things were moving very, very quickly. And I had previously done research in online learning uh, for engineers. Uh, per, primarily at that point, it was for professional engineers, mm-hmm. but I, I saw the opportunity there. And so I worked with my collaborator, Julie Martin, who's at the Ohio State University, and we uh, received an NSF rapid award uh, to Mm -hmm. study instructor decisions and how that affected engineering students during Mm -hmm. the the pandemic. And maybe also to clarify for those who don't know, the rapid awards, I think they were given for a year, right, or something like that, where you produce results quickly, so to inform decisions going forward. That's right. That's Mm -hmm. right. So um, we have almost all wrapped that work up. Uh, We received a no cost extension to which enabled us to continue disseminating and putting things out. We had spent so much time, as you mentioned, turning results around super quick and doing more like speaking events, I think, between. Oh, between May of 2020 and the spring of 2021, I had given something like 14 invited talks. So it was very much focused on the immediacy of getting the information out and engaging folks in the conversation of how are we going to support, how are we supporting engineering students that are online and in this time. So, but exciting, I'm excited to say that we wrote a follow-on grant to continue to study the pandemic impact, and that was also funded. And so now we have uh, sort of the second grant to continue to look at how uh, the pandemic has been affecting students in their engineering education. Thank you, Carrie. So can you talk to us about what are some of the things you found instructors were doing or not doing as it relates to assessment practices. This is an area I believe that is uh, understudied in engineering education. And so what were you finding 
before the pandemic and how has that changed um, since? So there had, so first I'll say there's no magic bullet or like correct right way to do online assessment. It's, it's super challenging. And I think my, the thing I was trying to encourage folks in was rather than trying to replicate what they did in the classroom to do the same thing online. I think there are a lot of folks that, that was sort of, well, we did it this way. And so how do we do it the same way, but in an online environment, I was trying to encourage or get folks to think about um, more creatively what is it that they really wanted students to be able to know and do and how would they demonstrate that through an online medium? So I guess with your question, um, you know, things in the spring of 2020 moved super fast. So I don't want to be too critical of any instructor because none of us were given notice. And so we are trying to really separate what happened then from online learning that's actually been planned for. So the term is uh, emergency remote instruction or emergency remote teaching. And I, I really think of the spring of 2020 as that where, you know, we at Purdue, we were told before spring break, we would not be coming back to in person. And so then it was the faculty preparing over what would have been our spring break to be fully online. And there's no way you can put a thoughtful course design process in place in that kind of turnaround. And one week turnaround, you cannot think through how to do everything online. It just, it was moving too fast. Now by the fall of 2020, um, people had had more notice and, you know, universities were still sort of switching back and forth. So some were saying we're going to be fully online. Some were saying uh, we're bringing everybody back. And then decisions were all very different. Um, so we saw a lot of, even within the same institution, a lot of different approaches. So one approach I, I think that became a, sort of a common was wanting to find proctoring services or, you know, ways of sort of administering a traditional test, but then the student behavior is being monitored in that process. So are they clicking other websites or sort of trying to catch the same way that if you were proctoring in person where you're watching someone? I saw students taking groups by or students taking exams via Zoom um, where they would be in breakout rooms and would have actual teaching assistants watching and seeing like, are they talking to anyone? Are they going to other places like looking around? And so like having people physically there watching. But as I mentioned before, I think that, you know, the opportunity is really to think about what, when the students are at their engineering job or when they're in their professional work, how are they expected to know this information? And, you know, if the questions that were on the original exam when we were all in person were simply multiple choice or recall related, then those questions don't really work too well anymore online because 
while you will catch some doing those proctoring, if students can Google it, then I, sort of my philosophy is if they can Google it, why are we asking it? You know, by the time they're in undergraduate education, by the time they're working on their professional degree, if this is information they can quickly Google, then why are we asking it that way? Um, why don't we ask it questions that are not Googleable, right? Is that a word, Googleable? <laughs> um, not. The other thing is um, having open-ended problems that require creative thinking, where students have to produce unique answers. That's something else where, you know, you can give them a amount of time to complete it and allow them access to resources and let that be that instead of trying to stop them from sharing or stop them from cheating or watching them cheat. Why don't we instead think about what do we really want them to take with them from this experience? What do we want them to be able to do in the real world or in the world outside of this classroom? And how do we ex how would we expect them to do this? So then present them with those kind of problems. So that's sort of I mean, I can I, I don't know, Nicole, how much more you want. I've got a couple other like way approaches I saw um, and even some I tried or my colleagues tried if you want me to continue. But I don't want to take too long. <laughs> sure. I think some uh, examples would be nice. So one thing we did um Actually, one of my, this was starting to occur before the pandemic was I had a, a graduate student that worked with me. He, uh, essentially for a given course, we had all these learning objectives, but then we created item banks sort of similar to the way that a, a large standardized test company would have lots of items per learning objective. And so we could create each student to have a unique exam. So again, that was another approach of, well, sharing your answers isn't going to really help because what's given to you is not the same exam that was given to someone else. However, the learning objectives being tapped all are the same. Um, so that was, I, I think one approach that I, it, it seemed to work pretty well. I think the issue is, obviously with the grading and making sure the graders know what it is they're grading, particularly when we get to the open-ended questions that becomes more challenging for training for reliable grading. Um, but that's sort of where the challenge is rather than the challenge being, well, how do we know they're not cheating or how do we know they're, you know, actual that they're not just giving each other their answers or how can we watch them type of an approach. So, Karen, thank you. I think to continue our discussion about how can we evaluate engineering classes in an online environment. So I would like to ask you about the holistic framework that you developed and wrote about. We will provide links to a couple of the papers that you wrote on the topic. So if we can talk a little bit about that and um, what's what's involved and what are the levels of evaluation? Well, thank you very much for asking about that. The work is definitely a work in progress that we continue over years to gather more information and refine it. It originated from a large NSF project I had on developing an evaluation plan for uh, STEM MOOCs or the massive mm -hmm. open online courses. And through that project, we conducted a number of interviews to try to find out 
what was important to instructors and students, like the learners themselves and administrators, like what's good about MOOCs. And Mm -hmm. when we, from those, the contextualized evaluation framework was developed. And then as my research continued to be more focused on online learning for working engineers, then we continued to adapt it and do studies of, you know, learner feedback and, and things to inform what made an online learning experience good for professional mm-hmm. engineers. And then currently we're underway working on an NSF project related to incorporating model-based systems engineering into undergraduate curriculum. And the way is through use of curriculum modules that are essentially online learning mm-hmm. opportunities that then instructors could just put into their actual courses. And so very similar to a MOOC structure, um, but, you know, where they're just these small, you know, maybe 10 hours of learning that then an instructor would be able to incorporate. So from that work, then we're continuing. Um, but the levels, as you asked, are there are five levels. And the first is the student level or student satisfaction mm-hmm. and most undergraduate programs pretty much only get this level right like they typically if you're talking about course evaluations they're primarily based on one source of evidence which is the learner's perspective of how mm-hmm. things went so within the framework here certainly the learner perspective is important but i consider evaluation taking multiple sources of evidence to arrive at the conclusion in the learner is that first source. The second level is the actual learning outcomes where we're evaluating to what extent were the students successful in achieving the learning goals for the course. And so oftentimes engineering courses have these learning goals, but whether the students meet them or not, or how many students meet them somehow is separated from the actual evaluation and and talking with instructors, what they care about is that the students learn the material, right? They want them to learn what the course is about. And so this level is really related to were the methods in the course effective at supporting the students to meet those learning goals. And then level three is the actual pedagogical practices or the level of support that this for the students learning. And so this is, you know, asking the questions of are the pedagogical practices aligned with the course objectives and do the assessments align with the course objectives? And so a lot of, you know, this is sort of thinking about that, you know, how are, how is the content and the assessment and the pedagogy all aligned? Then the fourth level is thinking about Like, how can the learners act, like, actually use and apply this information? And in our research, this was super important to practicing engineers and even, you know, engineer, engineering students that are, you know, more mindful of their careers and what's ahead of them. They want to know that this information is going to be useful for on the job. It isn't just busy work or things to do to keep them, you know, to fill up the seat time that's required. But, you know, do learners 
do they intend to learn this material for their work? You know, is this going to help them advance in their credentials? Mm -hmm. Is this going to help better prepare them for their engineering practice? And it regards the individual perspectives of learners as critical for judging the content that would, you know, advance them in their career and what their goals are. So this, again, is, you know, things coming straight from the learners themselves. And then the fifth level is the extent to which this course and the setup is actually going to be financially like suitable. And this was coming. So this is the broader impacts return on investment. And this was really important when we talked with administrators about why they were doing online courses is there seems to be a concern about the financial, you know, sort of side of things. And is it feasible? And there's this tension between how many students can you enroll in a course and the quality of the feedback and the level of direct attention that you provide to the students. And so both of those matter, like both, mm-hmm. both matters that it has to be financially sustainable and there needs to be um, quality feedback able to be given to learners. It, you know, there've been a lot of studies about, um, you know, peer grading, and that seems to be something that faculty will, or busy instructors, I mean, it's pragmatic, right? Like, let's have our, our peers grade each other. So there's been research on having students uh, calibrate and go through trainings of how to grade each other. But there's also been research that shows that the students don't value the, the feedback that they get from their peers to the same extent that they value it from someone on the teaching team. Mm-hmm. And I think when learners are paying for a course, what one of the things that really separates it, that makes it different from a MOOC is having an experienced other, that more knowledgeable other helping guide that learning process. And I think we need to be real careful when we remove it or we think that the peers have enough information to effectively give each other feedback because they're learning as well. But stay tuned because as I mentioned, we're currently writing up another contextualized evaluation like 3.0. I would say the one I just shared with you is 2.0, but we're continuing to refine it and um, use additional data to inform what a holistic evaluation of online courses would be and and thinking about it from an undergraduate level, regardless of the mode of online or in person. Karen, you know, I'm just curious about how this approach, this lens to evaluation would look like in reality. Well, that's, that's a great question. There's a couple ways I think about it in practice. Uh, the one is, So on another project, my team has been working on instructor visualizations or instructor dashboard where uh, we use some machine learning algorithms to be able to capture learners engagement in the course and their performance and having that aligned, um, doing the curriculum mapping where we can see how learning objectives across the content assessment and pedagogies are actually 
um, like seeing them as aligned where they're being tagged. And so we're working on some ways of automating this is I guess what I'm saying and how this information would be automated. Now, the learner satisfaction piece is currently administered through like teaching, like centers for instructional excellence or some, you know, teaching center on campus. And so that's one aspect that we would need to either be able to partner with them so that we could help in the visualization of results to instructors where they collect the information. And right now it's on the instructor to go through and sort of make sense of it, especially with all the, you know, depending on the size of the course, but you can end up with a lot of open-ended feedback. So anyway, that's one way is by a tool that we're attempting to build right now. And actually today we're just working on submitting the IRB to get instructors feedback on the prototype. But, and then the other is, as I mentioned, there are units on campus or on most campuses at this point that are focused on, you know, preparing faculty for active learning or doing professional development with faculty and also are administering the end of course surveys um, responsible for the course evaluations. And the only piece of information that really moves forward tends to be like the one question of on a scale of one to five, I would rate this instructor as a blank. Right. And so on promotion and tenure documents, you know, that, that, that's the only thing from all that information that ever, you know, carries forward. And not to get too sort of like radical. And I know there's a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of hot discussion about the validity of those end of course surveys. I, I think there is some validity uh, to hearing the learner's perspective. I just don't think it's the only one. And so what I would like to see is for more universities to invest in helping instructors, you know, with this. And so even with our dashboard work, uh, one of the ideas is that administrators could use it to sort of benchmark and instructors could use it to benchmark their course with other courses that are similar in nature. So one of the issues we've had is instructors will get results back, but not really know how to interpret it because is this similar to my colleagues? Is this not? And the only way they can find out is by, you know, tracking people down. Like, is a three okay? Or is that not okay? Like I got a, <laughs> or it, you know, oh, wow, I got a four. I must be doing awesome. And then later find out, yeah, the department average is like a four, three. So I think having the information where it can be actually more benchmarking can occur where the entities that are supposed to be responsible for doing course evaluations or are supposed to be responsible for ensuring quality education would actually consider these. So I'm not saying like, well, they have to utilize this particular framework or that they have to utilize the tool we're developing or anything. We're, we're not even in a position that it, it could be really shared right now. Evaluation, as I said before, evaluation and genuine evaluation is taking multiple sources of data to arrive at a conclusion. And how can we make conclusions about goodness of our courses if we don't have a holistic way of evaluating, if there's not a genuine evaluation of it? So I would like to see practically, I don't think most instructors have the time to do all this. So I'm not advocating instructors do this themselves. I would like to see 
tools developed that would provide this information to individual instructors so that they that instructors who wanted, who were willing, you know, could take that information and use it for improvement. And actually that it would be collected like with the approach we're doing, the information's being collected continually throughout the semester. So when I hear at the end of the semester in that course eval that this one will really get you on my on my course eval one year, they told me they could hear me breathing in the microphone all semester long, <laughs> like all semester long. And they like you tell me in the end of course eval, like that was probably annoying. You could have let me know, like Professor Douglas, like it would that would have been good to know or. You know, I was super confused on assignments X, Y, and Z. That would have been really great to know when I would have provided, like, had the opportunity to provide more information. And, yes, I do do um, those mid-course evaluations on my own. Not everybody does, but I find them very useful. And still, um, things happen in the classroom fast. Like, students get disengaged super fast, and you don't know when. But if we had you know, the capability to maybe not 100% real time, but within a few days to visualize like who's been active and who's not been so active. I mean, like it would provide the ability to intervene a lot faster. So I, I think of it as at this stage, trying to provide tools to make it easier for instructors to have information that's actually useful for improving their course. Um, thanks, Carrie. Uh, that was a very extensive um, description of the <laughs> framework, which I which I think our listeners will find very useful. I wanted to ask you, as it relates to changing modality, I know you said for the framework, it should apply regardless of how the class is taught, right? Whether it be face-to-face, online or hybrid. But one of the issues that, um, not issues, but one of the topics that comes up whenever we talk to our uh, guests is how do you develop, build, facilitate these kinds of relationships with your students where they can say to you, hey, professor, the microphone is just not working for me or, um, to, you know, having that kind of trust, if you will. That if they do share with you that I am struggling with assignment, can you help me to rethink or reconceptualize um, what's going on there? How do you foster these kinds of relationships regardless of modality? Well, that's a really good question, uh, Nicole. So I think in the last, if nothing else, in the last 18 months, oh gosh, it's coming up more like 20 months have taught us is that we can connect, you know, via internet. And you can build relationships without physically being in the same spot. And again, I think the challenge is to not think about it from this is exactly how I did it before. I think that would be a miss to say, well, this is what it was in person and now I'm going to try to recreate it the best I can here. I think that's a miss. I think the opportunity is to be creative and think about all the ways that society builds connections with each other without physically being present. And that was happening before the pandemic. I would have my first year students working in teams and they would have, I, I, I remember 
they have their backs to each other with headphones on and working on the same Google Doc. So I had them physically together, but they were not looking at each other and working together as though they were physically together. They were working as though they were remote. And this generation is way more comfortable with connecting through online means than I think people in their 30s or older. So in terms of letting the students know you care, I think that I think instructors who care find ways because they care. So, you know, for me, I created a few things. Um, one was the discussion boards. And I would talk to the students about, you know, the relationships you form with each other are just as important as the relationship you form with me. And I would really advocate for them to share with each other actual email and phone number and other information, because I wanted everybody in the class to know that someone's going to miss you if you're not here. If you don't log on, someone's going to notice, just like we would notice if you weren't in person. Um, We would also have Slack channels. And, you know, students could message me directly and I would instruct them, like, here are the kind of questions you can send me via Slack. If it's going to, you know, fast things like if it's going to take a more of a conversation, then let's, you know, schedule something or send it by email. Another thing I would do is I had virtual office hours and uh, just and just call them virtual drop in times where I had blocked on my calendar and shared the Zoom link and anybody could pop in and talk to me. And sometimes students did and sometimes they didn't. I also would put them in breakout rooms in their teams and then I would go inside the breakout rooms and just pop in on them unexpected like, hey, it's Professor Douglas. How are you doing? And I was sort of thinking about like I would in a a research sampling, right? Like when we do our research, if we're doing quantitative research, we're thinking about having a random sample. And so I would try to randomly sample each class so that I was hitting and getting to know everybody. Um, And and my teaching team, like my TA, I I was instructing to do the same. So there are a lot of ways, I think, Nicole, that you can foster those relationships and build community even in an online space. Thank you. You know, I if I can just kind of go back, what made me think also about evaluation and holistic framework is, again, Carrie, like you said, that it's really a lot of it is just to help instructors understand what's working, what's not working. But one question that came to mind is that as instructors, frequently we grade, you know, did students finish this quiz? Did they finish this midterm? Did they solve this problem? It's more kind of um, common pathways. Will the instructors be ready to take a holistic picture and, you know, come up with a final grade that's actually based on all the five levels? <laughs> and, you know, to say the student didn't do that well on the learning outcomes, but brought in a lot of the factors that could help to explain why it didn't work out that well. Um, do you think there will be readiness in, in, in taking all of this information and, and actually making the final grade based on that? Well, so I think that's a, yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I want to clarify, I, I definitely don't intend for the evaluation framework to be applied for an individual student, um, grade or, we're not 
like the holistic evaluation is evaluation of the course. So okay. not the, not the individual student. So, so it's sort of like whole, a health status dashboard to take yes. the measurements throughout general experience. Okay. Yeah. So it would, the information would be for the instructor to use for continuous improvement. Um, and so, okay. um, it wouldn't be for the purpose of the individual student okay. per se. Okay. Mm-hmm. So to clarify there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, even with that, I don't know. It's been really interesting as we've been looking for faculty to um, allow us to study their data to develop mm-hmm. the dashboard. We've been, you know, doing studies on how to best define or um, engagement, like what a good metric of, mm-hmm. of engagement is. Um, and it's been very interesting because some faculty definitely don't want anyone to look at what's going on. <laughs> in there you know like they think this is my data and i don't i don't want you know they i think they have worries of you know how it could negatively be used so that's why we sort of what our approach is we have a framework um we're starting to apply machine learning to inform the metrics of what these actually mean from a measurement perspective like what information we're actually collecting and what's important mm-hmm. um but it's more of an opt, like our approach has been really an opt-in. And so one question, uh, so this is usually the last question we ask. For the instructor, the practitioner who's still trying to figure out um, what to do for their classes as we move forward, what are things that in your admission or in your experience, things that instructors may have applied last year or in this last 20 months that as we're moving forward, we should keep in mind things we shouldn't leave behind. What do you think about that? Things we should keep and what we should leave behind? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think this is a great time to move into more active learning modes where Content can be delivered in short snippets, kind of like your podcast is aiming to be, you know, like 30 minutes. We can sort through what information just needs to be disseminated through talking and what's the value of truly being all together synchronously. Mm -hmm. I think it's an opportunity to think about how do we want to use class time or what's the value of a student hearing my voice rather than hearing someone else's, right? What's the benefit of having the faculty present? And what's the benefit of having the students present? What's best done when we're all together? And what's best done on my own? And I think, there, as, as I said, there's no one right way. I think it all depends on the content and the, the learners, what the learning goals are for the course. And um, so I hope that engineering faculty will, you know, move forward with the things that they thought worked well for them and not go back to things that in hindsight they realize maybe weren't the best. So Mm -hmm. kind of a generic answer, but (laughs) it's good. And, and, you know, so kind of a follow up to that question I have, 
I think it's kind of pointless to compare online, you know, versus face to face because those are just two different modalities and they have their own rules and their own flows and uh, limitations and affordances. But I think for some of the instructors who were sort of forced to teach online, the experiences might have not been great. And there's this kind of feeling, I, I just don't want to have anything with the screen anymore. I think there's not much value. We really need to connect as human beings. But if we don't, which I know is hard, but if we don't think about this pushed experience to online, but just generally opportunities in online teaching, what do you think what do you think are those affordances and opportunities? And what do you think are limitations of online teaching that um, we're still struggling with right now? I'll answer this a couple of ways. My first, in terms of what are we still struggling with, clearly assessment. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, clearly assessment's a tough one. Teamwork is a tough one. These are things that more research needs to be done to see what is effective. But the other thing I'm going to say is I don't actually think about you know, online versus in-person. Um, I think about it as all education. And I think regardless of the mode, there are things we know are effective. And, mm-hmm. you know, that starts with good instructional design, whether you're in-person or online. It's, you know, starting with the learner's needs, understanding who's going to be in your classroom and how my best going to reach them. Then going out from there, they all, you know, there's so many different educational technology tools and things. And it always, I think the crux of it is what, what is my goal? What am I really trying to have the students achieve? And when you have that in mind and you know that, then when you're out browsing, the tool will pop out to you. Oh, yeah, that will help me do this. Oh, yeah, that can help me do this. I think identifying a tool that just seems cool or like some fad, oh, well, you know, so-and-so said they were trying this, so I think I'm going to go ahead and try it. Like that, that's less effective than or having an awareness of where I'm trying to take the learners. And then when I see something, oh, Okay, this fits with what I'm trying to accomplish, and maybe that'll help me a little better. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for talking to us today, for joining our podcast. It was a really interesting conversation. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it.